Welcome to Startup Cornell, a podcast exploring the bold entrepreneurial ideas coming from our students, faculty, staff, and alumni. I'm Kathy Havis, your host, and today we're going to talk with Nona Allman, CEO of Lesson Loop and president of Improve LLC, companies that are focused on the public education and information technology sectors. We're excited to hear the story of what prompted her to want to solve problems in education and how her companies have improved learning for students in K-12 classrooms. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. Welcome, Nona. I'm so glad you could be with us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Kathy. Yes, really excited to have you and hear more about Lesson Loop. So if you can start by just telling us the 30-second elevator pitch about Lesson Loop. Terrific. Well, the problem we're trying to solve is that 86% of students say that they're not engaged in their learning. Our goal with Lesson Loop is to translate student voice and engagement data into real-time insight and research-based instructional strategies so educators can create more joyful, active, and meaningful class lessons. Awesome. So what motivated you to start Lesson Loop? Were you involved in education before? Did you notice this problem somehow? How did that come up? Well, I've worked for 30 years in education as a teacher, a school district administrator, and a management consultant. My management consulting projects were focused on strategy, improving operations, the use of data and technology, and helping with change management, helping school districts adopt reforms that required people to adopt new practices and implement them, especially in the area of instructional technology. And through working with over 50 educational agencies in 22 states, I realized that the key to improving our U.S. public education system is that we need to improve student engagement. And I think it's fairly obvious that if kids aren't engaged, they're not learning, right? But research also shows that highly engaged students learn a lot more. In fact, students in highly engaging classrooms learn an average of four and a half months more of academic content than students in less engaging classrooms. And I saw that after three decades of working in the industry that teachers had no way to measure in real time how or why students were engaged. Kids just won't volunteer, right? So the teacher might be lecturing and they don't really know, especially with shy students or even students that may not get one particular point, they may be embarrassed to raise their hand in front of others. So what I realized is that if we found a way to measure student engagement in real time, that we could then provide teachers with real-time insights on how to improve that engagement. And I learned in consulting, what gets measured gets taught and people move in the direction of the questions that you ask. So if we could find a way to ask the right questions of students that are linked to learning science and how kids learn, and then provide research-based instructional strategies to help teachers improve the way that they teach kids so they better connect with kids, that the materials are more active and joyful and interesting, and it's a nurturing environment, that we could solve those two problems I mentioned. We could improve student engagement, we can improve professional learning in a measurable way, and then through both of those things, we can increase academic outcomes. That's great. So talk a little bit about exactly how it works. Is it like a platform that teachers log on to, or is it like software that they're using in the classroom, or how exactly do teachers use this? Yeah, so our goal is to translate that student voice and engagement data through anonymous student surveys that teachers issue at the end of a class lesson, kind of like an exit ticket. So basically what our app does is teachers log on. We have nine categories that we measure their engagement in. And so teachers pick one of those nine categories to measure student engagement. And then they basically 
click a button and it provides a link for students and they copy that link into their Google Classroom or email it to students and then students take an anonymous class lesson. And then teachers get back a lesson engagement report. So you have these nine categories and then you can click into any one of the categories and it shows you how many kids agreed or strongly agreed or disagreed with the statement. So for example, one of the most important questions is, was I passively listening to my teacher during this class lesson or did I learn through any other type of activity? And you would see the number of kids that strongly agree, agree or somewhat agree or disagree. And then they get the percentage of kids that overall agree or strongly agree and they get a score. And then they compare that score to the school average. But the lesson engagement reports are confidential to teachers because we're a professional learning system, not an accountability system. And teachers have told us if our administrators is going to be able to see our reports, we're not using it. And that's why the surveys are anonymous for kids, too, because kids need the ability to be honest. So the goal is to improve and build capacity and practice by creating a safe space for teachers and students. And then the last part, so you issue the survey. And by the way, the survey is gamified. Ironically, we learned that for students to take it seriously, it had to be fun. So that was one of the other system improvements that we made. So it's a fun, gamified survey. It's really easy. It takes five minutes for teachers to issue. Students respond. Teachers get real-time reports in specific actionable areas in those nine categories. And then we ask the teachers circle back with students to discuss the results of the survey because that's where students have their voice validated. If students know that the teacher is listening to them and the students desperately want to be seen and they want the teachers to know who they are, so circling back validates student voice. It builds better relationships between students and teachers, and it also helps students take ownership of their learning. The last component of the system is that we also have these professional tip masters, instructional coaches, and veteran teachers who provide tips, personalized tips to teachers based on the lesson that they're teaching, the subject, the grade, the lesson, and the student scores. So Teachers get two tips a year as part of the base software package. And after they issue the lesson, we have tip masters who look at the lesson engagement report, and then they provide tips that are then embedded. And the research-based instructional strategies and a series of short steps on how to improve a lesson. And then the teachers rate the tip. We call it lesson loop because you get feedback from the student to the teacher, the coach to the teacher, and then the teacher rates the tip. And so you get feedback from the teacher back to the coach. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. So have you found that this is most effective in any certain subject or in any certain grade or do teachers from like all through K through 12 and teaching everything from like English to science have success using the system? That's a great question. It's every subject, grades three to 12. And the area that it's most commonly used and where students seem to be least engaged is math. That's the hardest subject for students to be engaged in. So we consistently see a lot of usage in math and English language arts, but it works in any subject. Very interesting. And I wonder if because of COVID, you feel like this is even more important. It feels like during COVID, like students were even less engaged because a lot of them weren't even in the classroom. And so they lost that like ability to be with their teacher all the time. I wonder if you see like more adoption of it or just greater use of it because of coming back after COVID. Yeah, you're completely right. Kids were really disengaged and traumatized and you'd see it. You see kids not being engaged. And so you're absolutely right. That's right when I came up with the idea was during COVID and it all kind of came together with that. So education work isn't always what you've done from the get-go. Like you were an ILR student and I I think you did some consulting after you got out of college. But talk a little bit about your career evolution, like how you started right after school and then how you ended up focusing on education. 
Well, yeah, that's a great question. So I can't, I come from an education family. My mother was a teacher. My dad was a school district attorney. And one of the reasons that I chose Cornell and ILR in particular is I wanted to be a labor attorney like my dad. And then once I got to Cornell, I started taking these classes on organizational behavior by Professor Gunfeld. He's a since past, one of my very favorite professors. And I decided that I wanted to change my focus to business, but I wasn't sure what industry. And I knew in management consulting, you could work in a lot of different industries and a lot of different functional areas. So I ended up taking a management consulting job, uh, my first job out of Cornell at Accenture. And that's where I worked with Fortune 500 companies developing strategic and organizational strategy types of deliverables and projects. And while I was there, I worked part-time as a teacher in the New York City public schools and Catholic schools teaching economics through junior achievement. And around this time, also, I read the report A Nation at Risk. And while I had had a great public education all the way through, I realized that most students were struggling in school, and especially historically underserved students. I love the management consulting, but I felt like I wanted to give something back. And so I thought, why don't I apply my management consulting skills into the education industry? And so I ended up going to business school to kind of go in with that degree. And I ended up getting hired by KPMG, the head of the government services practice, to start up the K-12 practice at KPMG. And I grew it from $500,000 to $20 million. They made me managing director at 36. And that was a really great opportunity. Then KPMG sold off the consulting side of the business, and it became Bearing Point. And so I ended up being the, the national K-12 lead there. And then Bearing Point went bankrupt. And as it was on its way down, they said, we're not doing education anymore. They gave me the education practice. And that's what I've been working with for the last 17 years with 19 projects for the New York City Department of Education, Chicago Public Schools, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I just did projects over the summer for the state of New Mexico, helping to reduce administrative burden for teachers and administrators by streamlining the data that's collected from them and also with the state of Texas, helping them implement $100 million of ESSER funding. And my role was to come up with the data metrics on how to measure the effectiveness of the instructional strategies that they were implementing in 190 districts through 13 technical assistance providers. Wow. So you're working all over the place. So you're doing all those things as well as running your own company. Yeah, that's one of the hard parts is that you're trying to get lesson loop off the ground, but luckily the consulting work, I can almost walk into any educational agency at any level, state or district, and I can help them based on my consulting work. And that helps give credibility to Lesson Loop and also is helping to fund Lesson Loop while I'm getting it off the ground. But it's definitely hard working those two full-time jobs. Right, right. So what are the latest products or initiatives in Lesson Loop that you're working on? Or what are the things that you're really excited about right now? Well, we just rolled out after three years of testing and piloting and adding new features based on listening to teachers and administrators, version 1.0 in the Jefferson Central School District, which is in New York, about 100 miles due east of Ithaca. And we're getting really incredible results. We also have a, a pilot going in Beachwood Central School District in Kentucky. And we're hearing amazing and seeing amazing things. So teachers are, are using this tool and they're learning things about students that they've never thought to ask before or really had a conversation about. So, for example, one history teacher was giving students too much time to write an in-class essay. And not until he asked them, did he learn? Because the kids weren't volunteering this information. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to shorten the amount of time and I'm going to have the kids that were finishing faster service peer advisors, to the kids who were taking a little bit longer. And we were in a professional learning session and the principal said to me later, I've been trying to get this teacher to 
do this, improve for two years and nothing has worked until now. Another teacher learned that the students were like, we need more, you're not, you're not teaching us. And she probed more. It was an art class, but she wasn't giving enough instruction at the beginning of art class on what the students needed to do. In some cases, teachers are just lecturing and the kids are like, can we just have some more discussion? We're, we just, we're just sitting here the whole time. Even teachers that have been teaching 20 years. And other teachers are saying, you know, I, I knew I should be doing this, but this just makes it easy. It helps me reflect on my practice and really know in real time what's happening. They say sometimes we can do engagement checks in the past, like thumbs up or thumbs down. Do you understand this? But she said some kids don't want to seem like they don't know what's going on in front of their friends or you have quiet children who are afraid to say something. And so this is a way to really kind of turn the lights on and make student engagement data visible and just asking that it's the right questions at the right time. So it saves teachers the time of creating their own Google form or even knowing what are the right questions that are, will most help kids in the classroom do better. So we're just really excited about getting the version 1.0 out and a couple of exciting things that have happened. It was announced February 27th that Lesson Loop is one of 10 finalists for the Software Information Industry Association showcase that highlights the most innovative ed tech startups. And we were also just accepted as an affiliate for the Research Partnership for Professional Learning out of Brown University, which is a group of professional learning organizations, researchers, school systems, and foundations that advance educational equity for our nation's students by strengthening and building usable evidence on teacher learning. And we're very excited to be part of that. It's the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation is in there, the American Institute of Research. They have researchers from Johns Hopkins and Cornell and Penn and Harvard and we're just really, really honored to be an affiliate of that organization. That's great. And I'm sure that's really helpful for your company just in terms of even more credibility for what you're doing. So to have those affiliations, is great. That's exciting. Is the showcase that you mentioned, the software, is that a actual physical meeting that you go to or is it a like an online event? It's an online event, though they may be going back to in-person actually, mm -hmm. have an in-person conference. Very neat. That's great. So, I mean, you mentioned all those great stories about individual teachers. So when you think about like your greatest successes, I'm sure that those are some of the things that come up. Are there other things that you haven't talked about yet in terms of what you think your greatest successes for the company are so far? I know it's just starting, but. I think the greatest success is that we have created a new, an entirely new measurement and process that could really make a difference in the education industry. And it's a big change in practice. It's not something that is standard practice. So initially when we started, people would be like, what are you doing? Like, why would you, you know, we don't do this. Like, what? Teachers are the ones that provide the information. We don't, always, we don't get information routinely from, we don't ask students how we're doing. That's just not the culture. So I feel like our greatest success is the ability to rise to the challenge of helping to shape a culture change and provide a tool and an easy way of doing this in a way that no one else has. And to me, that's a tremendously terrifying and exciting opportunity. It's terrifying because it's new and it could take a while. We know the culture change takes a while, but it's really important that we do this. So that's, I feel like, is hopefully a greatest success. I just think getting this far feels really exciting to me. Great. And the school district you mentioned, you know, Jefferson and then one in Kentucky, it feels like the school districts who are more progressive or who are more like willing to try these new things would be like maybe the ones in like New York City or Chicago. But like you've reached out to these districts in different places. So do you have an idea, like are there certain school districts that you're 
trying to target? Or is it obviously it's something that every school district could use, but I wonder you need some progressive leaders who are going to like accept this idea of a culture change. That's exactly right. So we are focusing, we're focusing initially on a few states that are progressive in terms of valuing student voice, being data-driven. The reason we picked Kentucky is they had a student voice initiative, one of the oldest in the country that started 20 years ago, where they really do value student voice. And now they have a new state superintendent that is very focused on deeper learning. And they are trying to create more vibrant, experiential, rigorous, and personalized learning experiences for kids to re-engage them. So Texas is a very fertile ground. And we have a former uh, retired superintendent there who's a big believer, Randy Poe, in our product and platform what we're trying to do. And we just got approved as an eligible vendor for a $25 million federal grant or state grant that they have to implement deeper learning in the state. That was really exciting. And then New York, I'm based out of here. I love, I love New York State. We've done a, a lot of projects in you know, New York City Department of Ed. And we met this amazing superintendent, former superintendent. Now he's the interim principal at Jefferson, Bob Mackey. And he also really believes in what we're doing. And like you said, we need superintendents and principals in states where they believe in student voice, in data-driven decision-making. They value experiential, rigorous learning and active learning. So you're absolutely right. You have to have the, the right environment at the state level and at the district level, and then eventually at the school level, because the principal is the one who sets the tone in the building. So you have to have all those levels in alignment. And that's why you have to be really careful about where you want to focus, because you need people that believe in what you're doing. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about your time at Cornell. So you mentioned a little bit about why you came to Cornell. I would love to know a little bit how you chose Cornell as the place to come, and then what kinds of experiences along with the ones you had at the ILR school, impacted your career and your life at Cornell? Were there classes that you were involved with or extracurricular things you did that you feel like have helped with the trajectory of your life? I mentioned my father was a labor attorney, and so I thought this really makes a lot of sense for me. That I thought I wanted to be initially be a labor attorney like my father. And so I ended up at Cornell, and then I just loved it. It was a really practical education that I had that I've used over and over again. The labor relations part is helpful because I work with school districts. There's a lot of labor issues there and union contracts. Just everything I learned, especially organizational behavior, the accounting, the human resources was super practical. And I've used pretty much, you know, nearly every week of my life, the, you know, the, the academic side of what I learned at Cornell. And I love the business side so much. I went on and got an MBA at Wharton after four years of working at Accenture and then went back, to, then went to KPMG. While I was there, I played squash. I love that. I was, a, I was a member of a sorority, Pi Beta Phi. And honestly, my best friends are from Cornell and we're still in touch and we meet weekly. It started during COVID too, but we meet weekly for yoga and to catch up on Saturdays and often Sunday mornings through Zoom. And there's seven or eight of us that meet pretty much every week. And then I met my husband through Cornell, one of my best friends, from Cornell, Ariane Shigani, who's now on the board of trustees. She went to med school with Tom and ended up introducing me to him. And so I met my husband through Cornell. And so Cornell's had a pretty big impact, both professionally and personally. And I have a great love for the institution and for my education that I received there. Great appreciation and sense of gratitude. That's great. That's great. I love those stories about people who, you know, the college friends end up being your friends that you have for your entire life. Meeting weekly is very impressive. That's great. That's really nice. And thank COVID for that. And then it just stuck, you know. So I'd like to talk a little bit about you as a person and what kinds of 
traits and skills you think you have that have been helpful as an entrepreneur. So talk a bit about some of the habits that you have, what your routine is like, what are some of the things that you feel like? And Because a lot of the people who listen to the podcast are students and are young entrepreneurs and wondering, am I a good fit for an entrepreneurial lifestyle? So what are some of the things that you found helpful as, as in terms of habits? If you're at Cornell already, you've been screened for this. And the Cornell motto of work hard, play hard, and being able to do well in an unstructured environment, I think are two of the main, I guess, habits or modes of work that work really well in entrepreneurship. So it's a lot of work. So pick something that you absolutely love and feel passionately about would be my advice to any students that are listening, because you, you're going to do it a lot. But if you love what you're doing, and you feel like you're making a difference, or you're making a difference for something that's important to you, you're going to enjoy it. It's not going to feel like work. My dad always said, I don't go to fun, I go to play. It's <laughs> I go to fun, like he doesn't go to work, he goes to fun because he loves it. You know, you do have to grind it out day after day. But if you're already at Cornell, you know how to do that. But you have to make sure to have fun along the way too, and take time for family and friends and exercise and mental health. So I think that the habits of just trusting the process and working hard and just asking good questions, and then just being diligent about following up and always having a vision in your mind of what does success look like each day? What are my top three priorities for today that will help me be successful in the long term? Those types of things are really helpful. And are there specific tools that you use in either digital or physical tools that you found really helpful in your life for organizing all the various things that you're involved in? I use my laptop and my iPhone you know, pretty extensively and all the apps that come with that. So any management consultant will tell you, you need you know, G Suite or you need the Microsoft tools. Excel, Word, and PowerPoint are, you know, for producing anything, we're always producing documents and deliverables for folks. So those are, are really, really useful. And then when you're building a software company, you need your screenshots, your camera, you have to be able to communicate with your team. Oftentimes they're virtual. So Slack and email and Zoom are super, super helpful. And on the personal side, just anything that helps with productivity and saving time. So ways, you know, how to get to the, where you're going as quickly as possible. I love music, so I listen to Spotify, and then if I want to hear it in the room, I use Sonos. And on the exercise side, I use a lot of apps, but I I love my Peloton bike because I don't have to go anywhere. I can just run downstairs, and that's also, I really enjoy the music and the instructors, and it's right there. So it's a very fast, easy way to get a good workout. So as an entrepreneur, typically you are given a bunch of advice that, or you seek advice sometimes, but sometimes you're offered some that is good, and sometimes that's not so good. And I would wonder if you could share with us any great advice you've received that you're glad that you followed and perhaps some that you're glad that you ignored? The best advice I've been given, one of them is people move in the direction of the questions that you ask. So as a consultant, and I found it also helps when developing a new product, you have to be a good listener and you have to ask good questions because that's where you learn the most. And I studied with the the field of appreciative inquiry and positive psychology. I once went to a workshop and I learned there, oftentimes in consulting, the traditional approach is what's wrong? Like what's not working? Where do you want to go? And how do you bridge the gap from like what sucks to what's great, right? How do you do it? But that's a really demoralizing way to be a consultant and to approach solving problems, even though you want to understand the problems. But the better way I learned to accomplish positive change is you start with building on strengths. It's a strength asset-based approach. So it's what's working well now. Where do you want to go and how do we build on what we do best to get to our shared positive vision of the future? And 
that strength-based approach will work in your personal life. It'll work in your professional life. But rather than focusing always on like what's negative, you can still focus on the problem if you want to improve student engagement. But instead of saying it's terrible, it's like we want it to be great. What questions do we need to ask? And what are we doing well that will help us get to really high engagement or a really good outcome? That's great. So do you think that strength-based process works specifically well in education? I think most entrepreneurs do say like, well, we had to find the problem and we have to find the solution. And there's not necessarily a lot of positive discussion of the problem. So that seems like a potentially new way to handle things. Do you think that works particularly well in education or it could work in any kind of situation? I think it can work well anywhere, but it does work particularly well in education because a lot of people are down on our public education system, which really isn't fair to our students and our teachers who work really hard. And when you go in any school, you can see these beautiful children and the joy on their face and they love learning. And the teachers are these caring, wonderful people that want to make a difference. And I think, you know, for whatever reason, there's been a lot of, you know, anger directed at our teachers and even at our kids. And that's not going to make things better, right? You have to really focus on that every person has the potential to become something wonderful. And our education system is a really great way to do that. And there's a lot of wonderful, caring people and kids that really want to be someone and be their best self. And so I think focusing on a strength-based approach is really critical because it's otherwise you demoralize people. And then when you're demoralized, you have this fight or flight, right? It's part of engagement. If you don't create a nurturing environment for kids where they feel a sense of belonging and that their voice is validated, they shut down. So it's not, it doesn't work. So I do think to your point, it's particularly important to have this appreciative, strength-based approach to improving our public education system. And I specifically think about that when you're learning math, because I feel like that there's a lot of kids who, when you mention math is one of the hot topics that, that this is used with a lot, that a lot of kids have that feeling about math, that I'm just not good at math. Math, I'm never going to be better. And instead of like focusing on, here are the things you do well, how can we maybe even improve that? That's, that's really interesting. Well, to your point that it's the growth mindset, right? Which is whole philosophy now in psychology that you have to be open to the fact that you can always learn more and that it's not intelligence isn't fixed right that it's something that you can build on and you can grow into so it's that's a really important point right i always ask people this question to tell us if there's one thing that people might be surprised to find out about you that you're willing to share if there's some interesting hobby you have or you you know grew up in some unusual location or whatever kind of thing about you that's maybe surprising so I had this passion for kite surfing that I developed in 2018. We were on a family trip scuba diving in the Grand Caymans, and I stayed down too long. They had these new computers that I didn't notice the beeping, like, go up. And so I would have gotten the bends if I went back down. So everyone else went scuba diving the next day, and I'm like, what do I do? I had learned windsurfing, actually, at Cornell on Lake Cayuga when I was there, and I just, I was going to go windsurfing. And they didn't have any more windsurfers there. They said, you got to try kite surfing. So I was able to get up for like 10 seconds because my instructor, I took a lesson, literally like threw me practically in the air. And I'm like, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. (laughs) It was just like so exhilarating to be, I love the water and I love wind and I love speed. And it's kind of a complex challenge of just, you have, you know, the kite and the bar and the board and trying to make all of those three things work together so that you can stay above the water. And it's, you know, it's exhilarating. So that's my I think people will be surprised to find that out, but I I really love it. That's great. So that's something that you can do only in certain times of the year or in certain locations, or can you do it? I mean, I'm assuming it's got to be warm. 
it's warmish. Like if you really love it, they have new wetsuits now that are really warm. It's you, it turns you like into a seal where you have like this outside layer of wetsuit and a little bit of space that the water gets warm. So I've gone in like with the water 60 degrees and it's 50 degrees out because you, you don't feel it as much. They have gloves and a hood and you can actually, it extends your season, especially here in New York when the summer season is pretty short and also the wind blows better in October, November. So I went as late as like the end of November this year. It stayed pretty warm. Wow, that's pretty good. Can, can you do it all by yourself or do you need someone to help you like get everything set up or you can actually like just go out there and go all by yourself? You can do it by yourself. I am too nervous to do that. So I always go with the group. We all go on a boat together and then I have someone that helps me launch the kite. Sometimes you can lose your board and you need someone to rescue you. So like I always go with someone. That but seems like I can that'd be smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're pretty confident. You've done enough that you could go. It's taken a long time. It was a really painful process, kind of like entrepreneurship, which is why I'm using the analogy where it's really painful learning process, but now I can do it. I'm an independent rider. I can ride upwind, which is one of the you know intermediate milestones that you have. Wow, that's good. So perhaps your daughter who became a dive master like has inherited some of that, like at least partially water-based sport love. She has. And she actually, she took a couple lessons this past winter with, with me. So she's, she's a natural. Right. That's very cool. Very cool. We're going to close out with just a couple quick things. I wondered if there are any books that you would recommend to aspiring entrepreneurs or to anyone that you have really enjoyed. Well, for entrepreneurs, kind of a life-changing book is The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. And the reason that's the case is that he's defined a process to manage through risk and uncertainty. So when you first come up with a new idea, you have no idea if it's gonna work. And oftentimes people may hate it. And in fact, with Lesson Loop, we originally, after in Jefferson, the first professional learning people were really, the teachers were excited. They're like, wow, we have a new way to measure engagement. Now we know what it really means. They were excited. Some of the data came back initially and it wasn't so great. The students weren't engaged. And so initially the teachers were like, we, we don't like this. Like, <laughs> And what I didn't realize at the time was, it wasn't so much a matter of product market fit, which you also have to make sure that your product actually meets a need and that people value it. But there's also something called an implementation dip when you come up with a new process, right? If you're trying to play tennis and you have a new grip or anytime you try and introduce new technology, there's an implementation dip where it gets harder before it gets easier. When you have to learn it, it's kind of painful. And then once you learn it, you do way better. I realized that we were more at an implementation dip than a product market fit. But the beauty of the book, Lean Startup by Eric Reese as he walks you through the process so you can figure out where you are in that journey. And it's just nice to know there is a process because sometimes you feel like, well, I invested all this time and money and maybe it's not good. But then you realize if you just keep focused on the customer and like, what don't they like? What is the need? Like I knew I was solving an important problem, but you have to really just focus on that process and that cycle and eventually you'll figure it out. But it's just nice to know in the book, he gives you case studies. He says, everyone goes through this time where people hate their product or they miss the mark potentially. It's hard to hit the mark right away. But this book kind of tells you exactly how to do it and makes you feel good about the process. Right. So you know not to give up at a certain point where, you know, you might be thinking that you should. Yeah. Exactly. That's great. And how about a business person you admire? Is there anyone that you have followed their career and really admire? Well, for me, the criteria for what really I admire is someone that can disrupt an industry and ideally through data and technology and also make it better. So someone who has a vision and ends up making a positive impact in the world. 
So just in the tech education area, I would say Steve Jobs, right? Because he had an idea and created something that people didn't even know they needed. And it's made lives, I think, a lot better. And then on the education side, I would say John Dewey, who has always believed early on in experiential hands-on learning. At one point, we got away from that and much more towards like very discrete, you know, skills that we could measure on a standardized test. But I think that set us off in a wrong direction. We're trying to have kids memorize things that are an inch deep and a mile wide. And we're getting away from what's really meaningful and useful to them as human beings and, you know, in the world of work. And I think John Dewey was someone also who had just come up with a different view of what education should be. And I think he was right. So ideally, we can get back to more of that philosophy of, of hands-on learning that's meaningful and also teaches kids to be prepared for the real world. Right. So a lot of the tips that your professionals are offering to teachers probably have to do with that, ways to get students more engaged, potentially through hands-on learning or some kind of active, more discussions, more kinds of involvement of the students. That's exactly it. It's making the lesson more exciting, more joyful, helping understand if it's too fast or too slow for kids or if it's too hard or difficult. And oftentimes teachers do have a wide range. If they're teaching AP kids and the regular kids, they have two groups. And so for new teachers to like, it's hard, what do I do? And But the beauty of having the data is it's like, all right, now we know where we are. You need to differentiate instruction, you know, break them into groups and have them focus on different things. You need So the strategies that we, our tip masters provide are research-based that we know work. And we have veteran teachers who are still teaching full-time in the classroom that write tips as well, and they know what works. So it's right. like the person who knows what works and then combine with the research-based strategies. And we actually cite the research in our database of instructional strategies. So teachers can go look at the research if they want. That's awesome. I wondered if there's anything we didn't talk about that you really wanted to share or any other questions that you wanted to talk about. For focused on the students, I would just say, follow your passion, figure out what problems you want to solve, what's important to you, what do you really enjoy doing, and then follow your heart. And always just follow the Cornell motto, like the work hard, but also have fun along the way. That would be my advice for students who are listening. If you want to find out more about Lesson Loop, I think the best way is our website, which is www. Lesson Loop, L-E-S-S-O-N-L-O-O-P.org. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. All right. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Take care. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And please rate and review our podcast by scrolling to the bottom and sharing your thoughts. Your reviews will help even more entrepreneurs find our podcast and be inspired by these stories like Nona's. A special thanks to Abigail Younger, my editor extraordinaire, and to Bert Odom-Reed of the Cornell Broadcast Studio.